0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 17. Please follow along with me. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me. This is the Word of God for the people of God today. I want to pray before I preach. So would you join me? Father, uh, Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that there is absolutely nothing in all of creation that can stop the preaching of Your Word. And that when Your Word goes forth, it goes forth with a purpose to save, to transform, so God, we pray that you would do just that in what feels like an impossible situation. Lord, that you would use your word even through video this morning to come and to change, to transform, to convict, to rebuke, to comfort, to give healing. We pray that you would do that and in the midst of that, that you would form and shape us as disciples and followers of Jesus, and that You would lead us through Your Word to the foot of a bloody cross, to the doorway of an empty tomb, and give us again the hope that we have of eternity with You in heaven. Lord, we love You, and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know me well, uh, you know that I am wired uh, to kind of see life like a war. This is something that oftentimes comes up in conversation with others. I am wired to see life like a war. Like life is constantly kind of uh, coming at me. Or or like life is a mountain to be taken during wartime. Uh, when I hear someone talking about charging the gates of hell with squirt guns or I hear someone talking about jumping into some kind of a fight to uphold truth or justice. I hear someone talking about jumping into a fight to defend the innocent or to advance freedom. Then, then you can bet that my head, and my heart, my hands kind kind of perk up a bit. I want to jump right into that. Sometimes I do without giving much thought to what's going on. Around me, there is some kind of a weird hard wiring inside of me that loves the challenge of a good fight. I love the challenge of a great debate. I love the, the lure and the hope of winning the fight. The, the hope of victory at, at the finish line in the winner's circle with, with my opponent, my enemy kind of lying in ruins. That's a pretty powerful, strong motivator um, for me to keep going and to stand firm. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what kind of personality you have. I don't know if you're as sick as I am, so to speak. But there's no doubt in the day and age that we live in here in 2020, uh, there are tons of things that we can be provoked to stand up and fight in. Uh, 2020, with, with all of its visible, all of its invisible enemies, so to speak, you, you've got COVID-19 at the top of the list, you got political upheaval, you got racial tensions, you got Western ideologies that we love to argue about, you've got, you got spiritual warfare going on. Uh, these things and, and a plethora of other things have provided more than ample opportunity to live in the frustration and the excitement varying levels of warfare as a husband and as a father as as, as a friend as as a pastor and a missionary uh, there's seemingly no end to the amount of battles either good or bad to get jumped into from social media to preaching from leadership development to discipleship from the early morning family devotions with my children to the end of the day as I lay my head down on my pillow and catch up on what's happening in the world on the news there's no end to the opportunities to stand firm in fight mode especially especially when it appears that dark forces are taking their toll waging war against the church the family cross of Christ when I think about the Apostle Paul I think the Apostle Paul was a fighter he was most definitely a a pastor who loved his people deeply and passionately and I believe that he could see the spiritual effects or, or, or the spiritual toll that some very dark forces had taken upon his beloved church in Philippi. And, and because of that recognition, he's encouraging them in this text to stand firm once again. Indeed, standing firm, really, not a new concept. Standing firm in the war is not a new concept or a new theme in Pauline theology. Um, if you were to look in, in, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, you see the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian church, and he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand insert, stand firm, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, in truth, in righteousness, in the gospel of peace, in faith, salvation, in the word of God, in prayer, in the presence of the holy spirit. Likewise Paul also instructs Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12, instructs his young protégé in the faith, young pastor Timothy, to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, stand firm, Timothy, in the presence of Christ, who is the embodiment of the armor of God, and stand firm in your confession of the gospel. Back in Philippians, the, the letter that we're studying through now, um, Chapter 1, verse 27. Apostle Paul says this. I've taken this to be the key text of the letter. You've probably heard it from me every week. But, but notice, notice the rest of the verse. Chapter 1, verse 27. Listen, listen to what Paul says. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, parentheses, as citizens of heaven, so that... Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. Not frightened by anything in your opponents. So stand firm together, Paul says. In a way that adorns, puts clothing on, it embodies The Gospel of Christ Jesus. Now in our text today, Paul sounds the second note of standing firm in this letter. He says, My brothers, verse 1 of chapter 4, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord my Beloved. So the theme of uh, standing firm in warfare, this is no new concept for the Apostle Paul. What what does Paul have in mind when he instructs the Philippians to stand firm? What does this look like? What What does it mean to stand firm? I've already talked a little bit about how we feel this maybe looks for us a few thousand years removed from this letter, living on the other side of the world in our Western context, we, we know what it feels like that should mean, but as I approach this text, I, I ask questions like, what, what does this mean for Paul? What does this mean for the Philippians? What is it that God... Wanted to speak through the Apostle Paul as he wrote this letter. What did he want to speak to that church in that context at that time? And then by implication and connection, what what does it mean for us today in 2020? What does it look like? What does it mean to stand firm? Well, you notice number one with me uh, in verse 17. uh, Paul talks about standing firm in imitation. Standing firm in imitation. Now anyone who calls others to imitate them better have their act together, right? The character better match their words. Their actions better speak louder than words. No one can deny, I don't think, One of the most visible figures of leadership in the known world today is probably the President of the United States of America. Uh, Regardless of what you think on that, um, each of us has different people in our lives or can look back to people in our lives that, that, that we have begun to imitate. Leaders so to speak. I don't think that anyone with any credibility could deny um, that as a leader goes, so goes his or her followers. As a leader goes, so goes his or her followers. In other words, those who follow a leader inevitably take on the characteristics of that leader. So, a brash, arrogant, deceptive, abusive leader, that kind of a leader will produce followers of the same character. On the other side, humble, courageous, honest, selfless leaders. These kinds of leaders produce followers with the same kind of characteristics. The concept of Imitation is as old as the Garden of Eden, if you think about it for a minute. Soon as Adam and Eve took their eyes off of the God that they were called to obey and to imitate, soon as they took their eyes off of Him, there was no gray space in between where you could prop something else up as halfway there or not. It was God. And as soon as they took their eyes off of God, they placed their eyes on someone else for leadership, for imitation. And they, they by default, Adam and Eve began to imitate the enemy of God. This is why Apostle Paul calls the Philippians, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 17. See, this call to stand firm in imitating Paul, it expands out from the Apostle Paul onto Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom he's already spoken of. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 20-21. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they, they are the implied subjects of the phrase, example you have in us. And this, this call, this call to imitate us, imitate me, imitate us, this, this call um, to stand firm in this kind of imitation, this is not one of a pride-filled arrogance. It's a call to imitation that is full of selfless humility. So when I think about that, we we must ask ourselves, who am I standing firm in imitating right now? Who is it that I look to to imitate? Who is it that I look to as a leader? And by default, are, are they full of godly character? Or are they full of Satan's character? Because there's either one or the other. No gray space in between. No excuses that can be made biblically. Paul moves on uh, from, from this uh, first um, recognition of what it means to stand firm. And in verses 18-19, through 19, he, he gives a warning which teaches us that we can stand firm in a warning. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite authors, scholars, preachers of all time, known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon once said, "...the backsliders begin with dusty Bibles and end with filthy garments." I'll say that again, backsliders begin with dusty Bibles and end with filthy garments. Now what the good old Spurgeonator had to say about this backsliding with dusty Bibles, filthy, stinky grave clothes, fits very well with the warning that the Apostle Paul gives here in verses 18-19 through to the Philippian church about some leaders who were not full of godly character, but instead they were filled with the character of their father Satan. Paul describes these Satan-filled, ex-believing, one-time, once-upon-a-time leaders in the Philippian church. Describes them as people, as leaders, whom I have often told you, Paul says, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In short, these apostates, as we would call them, they were once believing brothers. But now, they're lethal enemies of the cross of Christ. These Philippian apostates, wasn't like they had left the community, they're still there, had an influence. And they had literally dug their own graves as they chewed on earthly impulses and personal pleasures. You see, the pursuit of creature comforts for these leaders had displaced the pursuit of Christ and the cross that disciples are called to carry. You see, what and where we eat, how and where we live, what we spend to satisfy our own pleasures, all of that displaces the pursuit of the cross of Christ and the suffering that it entails. By by abandoning the the pursuit of Christ and His cross, our minds get set on pre-Christian, might I say even anti-Christian things, rather than the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's aim, Paul's goal, according to verse 14 of chapter 3. The way that we live, our walk, our appetites, the things in which we revel or take joy in. The set of our inner disposition. All these things tell the truth of our Christian or non-Christian character. We must, brothers and sisters, we must stand firm in this warning not to emulate, not to imitate people who exhibit the character of Satan. Paul felt so strongly about this that he wept tears as he wrote these words. And as we read them, we, we must stand warned as we realize that Paul's one-time friends, these once-upon-a-time friends and co-laborers, these leaders, they had become enemies of the cross of Christ. They were running towards destruction. They were ruled by the appetites of their bellies. They made shameful things into bragging rights. And they lived for earthly pleasure and comfort. So, as I study this and think about this, I have to ask this question. Who, who have I allowed to influence me into imitating their satanic character? Who have I allowed to influence me into imitating their satanic character? Let's not forget that Satan is an angel of light, and he's very deceptive. He was the first worship leader in heaven. So who who have I allowed to influence me into imitating their satanic character? What would it look like for me to stand firm in this kind of a warning moving forward? Who, Who do I need to receive as a mentor and leader in my life? Who do I need to maybe reject as a mentor and leader in my life? Paul moves on from this part of the discussion. Begins to discuss what it looks like to be standing firm in our citizenship. It's the third space he goes into, verses twenty to twenty-one. When you think about the Philippian believers, uh, they, they would always be at a high risk for hitching their citizenship in heaven to their citizenship in Philippi. Philippi was known to be a mini-Roman colony. Uh, Much like a mini-American colony, you could say. Uh, Citizens of of Philippi uh, could enjoy some of the benefits of being a Roman province. Namely, um, the so-called freedom of religion and the so-called freedom of philosophy, so-called freedom of speech in the Roman culture. So long as you hailed Caesar as the savior and the king of your life. uh, Caesar would give you prosperity. Caesar would give you freedom. Caesar would give you comfort as long as you espoused to or upheld his political power. Sound any way familiar to you? When the Philippians read the words of this letter from the Apostle Paul, they would immediately know that it was a countercultural message. And it was a countercultural message, not in the sense where Paul was telling them that they needed to go make war with the culture around them, like good zealots would. It was a countercultural message because what Paul is doing then here is he, he's reminding the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven. In other words, he, he's not instructing the Philippians to stand firm in their mini-Roman citizenship. He's reminding them to stand firm because their citizenship is in heaven. And from it, he says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You see, the Philippians needed to resist this very dark temptation that was coming against them at all times. This dark temptation of mixing their nationalism as many Romans with their eternal citizenship in heaven. And then what would happen is you'd have this weird kind of a syncretism that had been threatening the nation of Israel from the very get-go. It was a mixing and melding of earthly kingdoms with the heavenly kingdom. It was a dark temptation they would easily give into. And the only way that they would resist this kind of a mixing and melding together of their identities was to simply stand firm as citizens who possess the powerful expectation of eternal transformation under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ alone. So I ask, what would it look like to unhitch my citizenship in heaven from my citizenship in an earthly kingdom? Is this not what the issue was for Israel in the promised land? Is this not the reason why the blessing of the promised land came to such a horrid end? What would it look like to unhitch my citizenship in heaven from my citizenship in this earthly kingdom? Here's what I think it would look like. I think it would look like true freedom. I think it would look like true freedom. The kind of freedom that I don't think most of us walk in. Paul moves on from this section, talking about citizenship, moves into the final portion, final verse, one of chapter four, where he unpacks a little bit about what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Yeah. True freedom that I just talked about a moment ago, <clears throat> something that we here in America love. We love the concept, at least, principles of, at least, and some benefits of freedom, at least. But true freedom, true freedom tr- transcends what we experience here in America. True freedom is found in the presence of the Lord regardless of the place you live, the time you live, or the circumstances you live in. It's true freedom. It's found in the presence of the Lord. It's experienced there regardless of the place, time, or circumstances you live in. And and this truth, uh, this truth is what enables the Apostle Paul to sound uh, the note of joy the 13th time, he mentions joy in the letter. It's that kind of freedom that enables the Apostle Paul to sound the note of joy for the 13th time in this letter despite his earthly circumstances. You have to remember, the Apostle Paul is shackled to a Roman guard for preaching the Gospel. And don't miss this. It's not because the Roman guard... (coughs) or Rome for that matter at this time, had made it illegal to preach the gospel. No, that's not why Paul is shackled to that guard. Paul is shackled to that guard because those who should have been his brothers in Christ, those who should have been his co-laborers in the gospel, taken their eyes off of Christ and begun to fight for that which was not worth fighting for. And those men had falsely accused him of all sorts of unfounded claims as they proved themselves to be enemies of the cross of Christ. To Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, to Timothy, Paul described his imprisonment. It was the loneliest time of his life. For his once upon a time brothers had completely abandoned him and, and done him great harm. In that whole account, to Timothy, Paul says to him that no one came to stand by me, but all of them deserted me. May I not be charged against them. I love that heart of Paul. But the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You see, this is the perspective that was the center of Paul's gravity. That was the center of Paul's gravity. Namely, that he could stand firm in the presence of the Lord who stood with him when everyone else had abandoned him. And this same perspective This same perspective, that we must stand firm in the presence of the Lord. That this is what leads the Apostle Paul to make this the most, I think, the most personal statement from from any apostle in any epistle to to his listeners when he says in verse 1 of chapter 4 My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus, in the Lord, my beloved. See, ultimately, standing firm, even for right things, will utterly fail, if not for the presence of the Lord. Reminds me of Moses. God said, hey, I'll send you into this new land. Uh, But I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send my angel instead. Moses is like, heck no, bro. (laughs) Not going unless you go with me. Because even that good place that I could go to, it's worthless without your presence. Despite the loneliness of lockup, despite the betrayal of brothers who had become enemies, Despite the concern for the darkness that the Apostle Paul had, could see was creeping its destructive little head into the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul stood firm in the joy of the Lord's presence as he expressed his, his love and his desire for the people of Philippi. The question that I wrote down after studying this portion is, But do I I know what it feels like to stand firm in the presence of the Lord? Do do I know what it feels like to stand firm in the presence of the Lord? Have Have I slowed down long enough to taste that kind of sweetness? So in conclusion, by way of some small application, draw our attention back to the question we started with. question we started with, we asked, what does it look like to stand firm in the pursuit of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus as we seek, live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven on earth. And the answer that God has given us today through His Word, here in these verses, is that we can stand firm in imitation, we can stand firm in warning, we can stand firm in citizenship, and we can stand firm in the faithful presence of the Lord. So with that in mind and that in view, I want to give you four very brief, what I think I would call pastoral exhortations based on what we've just studied. And let me just say that I feel that what I've even written in my manuscript falls terribly short of the ways in which this could be applied. I'm not going to keep you much longer. I'm just going to give you what I've got and trust the Lord to pick up where what I say falls short. Exhortation number one, pastoral exhortation, which is an encouragement. Uh, Not a command, um, but a pastoral exhortation is something that should be listened to. So number one, I would say, just driven off the the four points that we studied, number one, stand firm in imitation. Stand firm in imitation. Now, Now, while you may have many great, not so great options for Imitation in this life. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to Jesus right off the bat. You can trust that Jesus is the best imitation for your life. And anyone who does not exhibit the character of Christ should be rejected as your leader. Period, point blank, and simple. Why? Because as a leader goes, so goes his or her followers. And as I say this, I'm reminded of Christ's great love. Christ's love for His enemies, for you and for me, when we were enemies of Him. He did not seek to annihilate us, shame us, guilt trip us, or put us down. Christ's love for His enemies reminds me of the extent of that love and that it was proven in His selfless death as he was nailed to a bloody Roman cross. (coughs) So stand firm in imitation. Number two, second pastoral exhortation and encouragement. Stand firm in warning. Stand firm in this warning that we've heard today. There are many people who would like to vie for your support in this season. Many who would like to call you to follow after them. And I would only ask you to search their character. Ensure that they do not possess the character of Satan, who was an arrogant, deceiving, blaspheming, abusive, selfish, egotistical, pathetic excuse for a worship leader. Do not magnify... Or lift high leaders who as enemies of the cross of Christ are running towards destruction because they are ruled by the appetites of their bellies as they make shameful things into bragging rights as they live for earthly pleasure and comfort. Heed this warning, be protected by it, stand firm in it. Number three, stand firm in citizenship. Stand firm in your citizenship. You need to be reminded that if you're a believer, you trusted in Jesus, then this earth is not your home. And even if you haven't trusted in Jesus, this earth is still not your home. There is an eternity on the other side of death. This earth is not your home. Here's the reality. America will one day be a footnote in the history books of eternity past in heaven. Let me say that once again. It's not fresh with me. Another scholar, author, much better with his words, said this. And it resonated. America will one day be a footnote in the history books of eternity past in heaven. Don't get too comfortable here on this earth. Don't chase comfort here on this earth. In fact, let the discomfort of this year especially remind you Let that hardship, that suffering, that frustration, discomfort, let it remind you of the hope that you have in heaven if you trusted in Christ's work at the cross. Let it remind you of the hope of heaven and the final transformation completely changed. No more tears, no more sin, no more death, no more decay. Let it remind you of the hope that you have in heaven and the final transformation that is Yet to come at Christ's return. Final thing in this one: don't, don't trade the hope of heaven for the hope of earthly things. Don't trade hope of heaven for the hope of earthly things. Stand firm as a citizen of heaven. Finally, Pastoral exhortation number four. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And in this one, I take you to the place that I want to take you as a pastor and shepherd every week. And it never gets old. If it does get old, then it never gets old for those who belong to Jesus stand firm in the Lord. The way that you do this is at the foot of a bloody cross. If you would kneel down at the foot of a bloody cross, if you would, if you would kneel in the doorway of an empty tomb, if you, would, if you would soak in the power of an empty tomb, the fact that Jesus rose from the grave And that before that, you would soak, let your mind be captured by the fact that Jesus, who is perfect and did not deserve to die, died a most horrible death on a cross for you. That His body was broken and His blood was shed for you who acted like His enemy, who acted like Satan. That He died for you. He left that tomb empty for you. If you would rest in that, that's the kind of leader that Jesus is. You would kneel at the foot of the bloody cross. If you, would, if you would kneel in the doorway of the empty tomb, if you would let the light of the hope of heaven shine on you as you ponder the return of Jesus. And remember, does life not all there is to your existence? Whoever wins the presidential race in the next few weeks holds no bearing on your eternal destiny. What happens in your marriage with your children, with this church plant, with your job, any other good earthly pursuit on this earth, whatever happens there holds no bearing whatsoever on your eternal destiny. The hope that you have in heaven. Don't trade the hope of heaven for the hope of things on this earth. If you would take your place there, foot of the bloody cross, doorway of the empty tomb, light of the hope of the eternity in heaven. If you would take your place there, you would be ready for spiritual warfare. You would walk in the joy of the Lord despite your circumstances. You would live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as Jesus Christ as a citizen of heaven here on this earth. Even even if you have to say with the Apostle Paul that the Lord was the only one who stood with me. You see, tasting the sweet victory that is bestowed upon a warrior as you cross the finish line into the winner's circle, tasting that kind of victory can only happen as you surrender your life to the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb as you cling to the hope of heaven. You see, victory, victory, which is the sweet taste of absolute true freedom, that is found in the hope of eternity and it's experienced in the sweet presence of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. So in Christ alone, my friends, in Christ alone, brothers and sisters, I pray You'll take Your stand. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this Word. And I ask God that You would take it now and use it to transform our hearts more perfectly into the image of Jesus. I trust You to do that work by the power of Your Spirit. Fixate our eyes on Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.